The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now let's open our Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Revelation chapter 21. Today we have another privilege of opening God's Word for a Sunday morning discussion again of the great hope of every Christian, uh, and that is uh, the hope of heaven. One of the dictionary definitions of hope is this meaning, intend with some possibility of fulfillment. Now that may be a definition that's accurate for things that you wish for, but it's inaccurate as a Bible definition. Christian hope is not a whimsical wish in which there is some possibility of fulfillment. I'd like to show you the difference uh, between dictionary hope and Bible hope. And so I selected just a few verses out of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 3, verse number 6. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Hebrews 6.11, And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Hebrews 6.18 and 19, That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. And Hebrews seven nineteen For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. Now here are the adjectives that describe a Christian's hope. Hope that is firm. Hope that is assured. Hope that seizes upon the promise that God cannot lie. A hope that is sure and steadfast. A hope that is anchored. And then just simply this from that last verse, a hope that is better. The Christian hope is not about possibilities. It's about something as sure as if it had already happened. Now here's another interesting affirmation that heaven is not just a possibility for believers. Jesus, who is the living hope of heaven, said this, Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, what makes us so sure of heaven that it's more than just a possibility? It is this, to have your name written in God's ledger in heaven. To have God put your name on a mailbox in heaven. And then further, the scriptures say that God gives us citizenship in his heavenly country. And even more interesting is the time that he actually did that. Well, when did he make that arrangement that you're going to be in heaven? Well, he says that your names are written down before he ever created the world. So isn't that interesting? He made you and he formed you. And when you were born, he had made you for heaven. In time, he made everything possible, put everything into its place so that you would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, just as you do this morning, to hear that and be brought to repentance and faith. Now, your guarantee of eternal life in heaven was planned in every detail. So salvation is not a lucky chance that you get. It's by God's design. Heaven is made for you, and you were made for heaven. Many years ago, 
uh, Dr. D. James Kennedy developed a systematic approach to winning souls, which he called evangelism explosion. And I remember uh, listening to Dr. Kennedy's tapes, and whenever he had sat down with a prospective convert, he would explain the gospel, but he would begin always with this question. He'd ask this question, If you were to die tonight, why would God allow you into his heaven? Now, his method was not to spring hell on people and judgment on them immediately. Uh, and we can argue about whether that's the right or the wrong approach. I tend to think that we should start with the wrath of God. And, uh, but, I, but I fully understand this, that explanations of the gospel, we have to assess the situation. Not every uh, presentation of the gospel should be canned. So we look over the situation and see what is the best way that we can begin to introduce people to the gospel of Christ. But this is the way Dr. Kennedy started. He always started with this question. It was a question about heaven. Then he delayed speaking about God's wrath until later, but then he most definitely told people that, that something has to be done about the wrath of God in order for you to be able to enter into heaven. And so he would start with that question, why should you be allowed to go into heaven? Well, the fear of hell is a good motor, motivator for belief. But shouldn't we understand something more about salvation? That it's more than just avoiding hell. That we are saved from something to something. We are saved from destruction in hell in order that we might have peace in heaven. Now at some point, what we must do is to develop a love for God as our motivation for our faith. It's more than just the fear of dying and going to hell. But the greatest motivation that we have for trusting Christ as our Savior is the love of God and the fact that He has prepared for us this wonderful place that is called heaven. Now, I often think that we miss that point. That as Christians, we're not joyful enough because too often we serve Christ out of fear. We serve Him out of fear of what, he think, what we think that He'll do to us, what God will do to us. And when that happens to us, we revert to performance-based Christianity. And so Christians will push themselves towards duty in order to get God to like them better. Well, I think uh, they think that if they, if they perform well, then somehow that God will love them more. But the truth is that God can't love you more than He already does. He loves you because you are in Christ. He can't love His Son any more than He does. And so He can't love you any more than He does because you are sons of God in Christ once you have trusted Him. So you don't have to worry about, is God going to love me more if I do this or that? No, God can't love you more because you're in Jesus Christ. Now that is what frees you from performance-based Christianity. You're not saved by grace and then kept saved by the things that you do. And this was Paul's exact argument in Galatians chapter 3. He said, This only would I learn of you. Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? We need to get that. We're saved by grace. We are kept saved by grace. God started the work in us, and it's God that must finish that work, and God says that He will. In fact, the Bible tells us that God is the one who performs. We don't worry about our performance to get us to heaven. God is the one who performs. So Paul wrote in Philippians 1 verse 6, being confident of this very thing, 
that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. And so God is the one who finishes our salvation. He saves us for this place called heaven and he takes us to be with him forever. And that's why our hope is sure and steadfast because it depends on God, not on us. And so God's never going to fail. We never have to worry about God failing. You trust Christ, you're going to heaven. Don't worry about it anymore. And then you serve him out of love for him. So he finishes our salvation. The gospel of Christ includes this great incentive that when we die, we will go to heaven. We don't serve Christ because of fear, but because of gratitude and thankfulness and love. Heaven is where we're headed. What is heaven? Well, after nine sermons on the subject, I hope you know a little bit more about it than you did before. The chap- this chapter is about heaven. There are thousands of sermons that have been preached about heaven. There are hundreds, perhaps thousands of books that have been written about heaven. But this chapter is still the best information that you can find anywhere. And if you have some other idea of what heaven will be, then a question must be asked, where did you get your information? And what is the authority for that information? Many have said that chapters 21 and 22 are sufficient for this subject, and they are correct. And you know why? Because this was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. This is God's word. God gave this to the Apostle John. He wrote this down and recorded it for us. So this is the best information that is available. So when you want to know about heaven, read this and stop. Because this is the very best that you can get. You don't need any, anything else but this. Or something that somebody's written that expounds this text in just the way that it should be. Listen to a sermon that expounds it. Don't get into somebody's hypothetical speculations about what heaven is. This is what heaven is. Now let, let's start here by looking once again at verses 9 through 11. And there came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now let me remind you of the previous discussions that we've had on this text. First of all, we talked about the angels of the city. Hebrews says that there are innumerable angels in heaven. Angels are everywhere when you leave this life. Everywhere. There there are so many of them. The gates have angels at them. The throne room has angels in it. Even the new earth that God creates, there will be angels on this earth. And John's tour guide in this particular text is an angel that God sent to show him all the different sights of heaven. Then number two, uh, we looked at what John said about the appearance of the city. And the most impressive feature that he saw was the brilliant light of it. The whole city was engulfed with the glory of God. And it was a light that is so bright, the scripture says we can't approach it. God dwells in a light that we cannot approach. Now, in the beginning, God said, let there be light. And then God made receptacles to behold that light. He made angels and he made creatures on this earth 
that could see the light of the glory of God, but we lost that ability to see God's glory. That's what happened when Adam fell. We lost the ability to see God's glory. The original creation could see the light of God's glory. We can't anymore because of sin. And so when we get to heaven, that prohibition is lifted. The sin is gone. And then we are able to see the unveiled glory of God. Now, I want to remind you also of, of this discussion that we had last week about verse number 23. We looked at that and saw how that it proves that Jesus Christ is God, that he is deity. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. That's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb, the Lamb is the light, the light is the glory of God. And so we can't miss that stunning statement that Jesus is the same as the glory of God. Well, now we need to move along in this narrative to see the third aspect of the New Jerusalem. And this is the architecture of the city. Creation needs a creator. Building needs a building needs a builder. That's what Ray Comfort says in his videos. A building needs a builder. Architecture needs an architect. Who is the architect of heaven? Hebrews says that Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. A few years ago, that's been many years ago now, I built a few houses. A couple of them were of my own design. Some others were modifications of others' designs. Some of my acquaintances were, were architects. Uh, one of them was the chief architect for the Shah of Iran before he was deposed in, in 1979. And this fellow, this architect, was kind of an odd duck. Uh, he designed some houses that he built in Kentucky that looked like Middle Eastern palaces. And needless to say, in the, in the Georgian colonial-style architecture that mostly what we have in Kentucky, those houses didn't fit in very well. But when I think about architects, it caused me to think about, well, what did the great architect of heaven design? What, what would his design look like? And I, and I come to the conclusion, it has to be a city that reflects who he is, it has to be a city that reflects his glory, that must be as perfect as he is. Nothing that he would design wouldn't be tops in architectural digest. And so my first observation is God can't make anything that's substandard. Then the next thing that I would look at is that God can't have any people that live in his city that are substandard. Now, I hate to say it this way, but we know that this is the way things are. We know this is true. We are worried about who moves into our neighborhoods. We want to know what family is going to move in that will not take care of their property and bring the property values down for everybody. Now, in our neighborhood, we have a neighborhood association, and they say, well, this is what you've got to do. You've got to keep your house up to this standard. So they have these, these rules that they give you. Each month, the association sends out a newsletter. And in this newsletter, they talk about crime in the neighborhood. And they'll tell you what to look out for. And they'll tell you, say, be very careful about this. As soon as you see some kind of suspicious activity, immediately call the police and report that. Why do they want you to do it? Because they don't want crime in the neighborhood because crime brings down the property values. Too much crime, the property goes down. So we don't want substandard people in our neighborhoods. I know that sounds kind of elitist, but that's the way we are. That's how people think. We don't have that problem in heaven. 
Because all of our neighbors there are going to be as pure as Jesus Christ himself. They live in the city that's built by God. They live in the city that's holy like God. And they have been made worthy to live there because of what Jesus Christ has done for them. And so the property values in that place are out of, out of the roof. They're at, at sky high. The other day, I was driving across Fountain Grove. And I just imagined, what would it be like to live up here? Live up here to see all those twinkling lights down in the valley. Oh, that would be a great thing to do. See the twinkling lights in the valley rather than my neighbor's security light that stays on all night long. They probably don't want me in their neighborhood. Oh, they may think, you don't have enough money to live in our neighborhood. They're right about that. I don't have enough money to live in their neighborhood. They think, well, you move into our neighborhood, the property values are going to go down. An old Baptist preacher living in our, in our neighborhood, we don't want that. But wait till they see what I own in heaven. Now, don't get me wrong. If they offer me a house in Fountain Grove, you don't have to ask me twice. I'm moving, okay? But that's not my dream. That's not what I'm looking for. Because I know this. I've just got a few short years to live on this earth. And then I'm moving to another place where I'm going to be higher than they are, stepping on the clouds. What a place that I'm going to have when I get to heaven. So it causes us to think, what is this city like that God built? Look in Revelation 21, verse number 12. It starts to tell us some more about it. It says it has a wall, great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. So what is the architectural design of God's city? Well, first we see that it's shaped like a cube. Verse 6 says, And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth, and he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. There he's describing something that is four square. So the angel measured the length and the width and the height of it, and it came out to equal measurements of 12,000 furlongs. Now most of us have trouble with furlongs. You don't know how for long this sermon's going to be, so I'm not going to leave you, leave you to see till later to figure this out and add it all up. How big is the city? 12,000 furlongs. Let me help you with that. That's about 1,500 miles. 1,500 miles on each side, 1,500 miles east and west, north and south, and 1,500 miles from the bottom to the top of it. Let me give you just a little bit of perspective on that. If you took the footprint of the New Jerusalem, and placed it over a map of the United States, it would reach north to south from Maine to Florida. From east to west, it would stretch from the Atlantic Ocean to Colorado. The height of it is also 1,500 miles. Now imagine that for a minute. You leave the auditorium today, look up to the north, and you see Mount St. Helena. The New Jerusalem would be 1,800 times higher than Mount St. Helena, 300 times higher than Mount Everest. 
There's no way that you could ever hope to see the top of it. You stand at the bottom, you look up, it goes up and up and up and up. You can't even see the top of it. And this city is a perfect cube. But there are many people who say, well, no, no, it's shaped like a pyramid. It's a square pyramid. It's a pyramid with a square base. And it rises to a point of 1,500 miles at the apex. I want to show you why I don't think that's right. I don't think the city is a pyramid. I think it's highly unlikely that God would build the New Jerusalem like a pyramid because the pyramid seems to be the shape that's favored by, for the worship of heathen gods. Now, I'd like you to take your Bible. Turn to Genesis chapter 11 for a moment and let's see if we can get some insight into this. In chapter 11 of Genesis, this is the story of the beginning of Babylon. Now, Babylon is the city that always stands for the place of Satan. It stands for the worship of idolatry. Babylon is actually where idolatry began. Now, in Genesis 11, in verse number 1, it says, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name that we may scat lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. What we have here is the first instance of idolatry in the Scriptures. Nimrod was the leader of this group. They wanted to build a tower to worship the constellations of heaven, the host of heaven, gods that they thought lived, many different gods in the heavens. Now, what is a tower? It says they built a tower. What is a tower? Well, the word Hebrew is exactly what you think it is. It's, it has a base, a four-square base, and it rises to a point like a pyramid. So almost assuredly, the first organized worship of false gods in the Scripture was in Babylon when they built this tower, this pyramid in Babylon. Now going forward in history, we come to the Egyptian dynasty. And what's the first thing that you think about when you think of Egypt? Pyramids. Yeah, the first thing that I think about Egypt is the pyramids of Giza, and there you see the camels walking in front of the pyramids. Nothing says Egypt like pyramids. Well, what are they for? Why did they build the pyramids? Well, they were built by the pharaohs who thought that they were gods, that they were the gods, the sons of, sons of the sun god Ra. And the bigger and more ornate the, the, the size of the pyramid indicated how much that that pharaoh thought that he was a powerful god. So the bigger ones are, are the most powerful of the pharaohs. Then they were used as tombs and many of them were built during the Middle Kingdom age, the Middle Kingdom dynasty of Egypt, when there is almost no doubt that the labor, the slave labor that was provided to build those pyramids was the people of God. God's people, just before they left in the Exodus, for those 400 years that they were in Egypt, they helped to build these great pyramids. Now, it seems that the devil always tends towards the pyramid shape. And you see that still today in symbols of the occult. Listen to this comment. The upward-pointing equilateral triangle has always been the occult symbol for the deification of man. Man lifts and exalts himself to become God. 
Now, I don't think it's likely that God would use a shape for his city since that since the earliest days of history has been used in perverted worship. So what is the shape that God favors? It's the cube. In the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, that was a room that was a perfect cube. 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. And the Bible says that the tabernacle was based on a pattern of things that are in heaven. So could this be what we're looking at? That the tabernacle was built after the pattern of heaven, that the new Jerusalem, the entire place, is a temple to the holy God. It is a four-square built city, built to the uh, holy God, a massive cube where God lives. And you remember that it was in the cube of the Holy of Holies where the great Shekinah glory, the light of God, shone in that place. God concentrated His glory into a small light that was there, and that showed that God's presence was with the people. So the shapes, the patterns, the designs, the meanings, all of these are symbols that points upwards to the glory of God. These are symbols of His holiness, the holiness that you and I must have before we can see God. When you trusted Christ... You promised, you promised that you would live a holy life. Faith in Jesus Christ says that you are going to live a holy life and start preparing yourself for the holiness of God to live in heaven. Well, next we have another tremendous feature. The new Jerusalem is surrounded by a diamond wall. Verse 17 and he measured the wall thereof, a hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper. And the city was pure gold, likened to clear glass. There's a wall that goes completely around the city. That would be four times 1,500 miles, or about 6,000 miles. The Great Wall of China is not long enough to go around the city of the new Jerusalem. Now the angel measured this wall. Now before I comment on what he measured, I want you to notice that the scripture says that he measured according to the measurement of a man. That means that he was using human measurements. He's giving us something here that we can understand. These are human measurements. And I thought about that and, and uh, I thought it was kind of interesting, especially comparing it to what we read in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, God says day. There was a first day. There was a second day, third day, and so on, when God created all the different things that are in the world. Now, what God did was to measure that by the measurement of man. God gave us a day. We know what a day is. We measure time by days, and that's a 24-hour period. Today is a 24-hour period. Tomorrow will be another 24-hour period. That's the way it is. So if I say to you, I I'd like for you to come back in six days. Don't come back in 2025. I mean, six days. I mean, be back here on Saturday because a day is a 24-hour period. You know when you're supposed to come back. That's the way that God deals with us in the Bible. He gives us the terms that we understand. And that's how God created the world in six literal days. God created the world. Now here the angel measures according to the measurement of man. What is it that he measured? Well, his measurement, we see, equals 144 cubits. That is 216 feet. What is he measuring? Is he measuring the height of the wall? 
Well, the city itself is 1,500 miles high. Putting a 216-foot wall around this city would be like putting a curb around the Empire State Building. You wouldn't even hardly be able to see it. That would mean that the wall would be 37,000 times lower, smaller than the city itself. And if you compared that to putting a fence around your yard, your neighbor's pit bull wouldn't even see it. He'd walk over it and come over and bite you. And, you, you know, it's okay. He's not even going to see that kind of a fence. No, he can't be measuring the height of this wall. So most likely what the angel was measuring was the thickness of it. The wall is as high or nearly as high as the New Jerusalem itself. And surrounding it is this wall that's 216 feet thick. The massive wall goes completely around the city for that height of 1,500 miles. 216 feet thick for 6,000 miles. It's made of jasper. You remember last week when I told you that jasper is most likely a diamond. Now this city shines with the glory of God and shining through this beautiful wall for 6,000 miles around and hundred miles high the light of the glory of God shines through it and it's broken into the brilliant light of the spectrum and so to see that can you imagine what that's like uh, how far and distant that city would shine with all this beautiful light that comes from it can I just speak to you about that for just a minute you know it's very hard to get Christians many of them to pay their tithe and they, they won't pay it because they're afraid they're going to miss a payment on their 60-inch widescreen TV. So they go out and they buy a 4K TV in order to see the brilliant colors. And if you ask them, well, would you give some to help people see the brilliant colors of the New Jerusalem to be saved and go to heaven? And they say, no, I can't do that. i got a TV i got to pay for. There's brilliant colors on my TV. Oh boy, I tell you what, we're, we're accumulating all these little trinkets of China, cheap trinkets of China, rather than giving to the power and glory of God. We're fools. We have a dazzling city with diamond walls. Now look at this important factor, and that is the symmetry of the dimensions. Have you noticed God's perfect symmetry? Many times when an architect designs, he designs to balance the features of the building. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that in Kentucky we have a lot of Georgian colonial architecture. A Georgian colonial makes the most out of space. It's, it's boxy. If you cut the house in half, the right side is the same as the left side. There, there isn't any wasted space in a Georgian colonial. It's not like houses that are built with many offsets. I mean, this, this is a square boxy type of thing. There's, the room is... It's an efficient building design. That's what God is. He's a very efficient builder. He likes symmetry. And the symmetry that God uses is displayed in specific numbers that we see in Scripture. There are 12 gates and there are 12 angels. There are 12 foundations under the wall. The city has 12,000 furlongs on each side. The width of the wall is 12 times 12 or 144 cubits. Are those accidental numbers? Well, no, God doesn't do anything by accident. In the seventh chapter, there are 12 tribes of Israel, and there are 12,000 that come from each tribe. You add that up, multiply that, that's 144,000. There are 24 elders that are in the throne room. Twelve probably represent the tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, and 12 the apostles of the New Testament. 
My guess is that if God puts a swimming pool in your backyard of your mansion in heaven, it'll be 12,000 miles long and 12,000 miles deep. My guess is that God is going to use the number 12 again. Now, it's just incredible to look at the numbers that are in the Bible. There are threes. You often see threes in the Bible. Three stands for the Trinity. And you have space, time, and matter. That's a three. You have sixes in the Bible. You have sevens in the Scripture. There are tens and there are twelves. And the number that God most favors for the New Jerusalem is the number 12. These aren't arbitrary numbers. These are consistent. So it appears that in the New Jerusalem, the number that's favored is 12. That's an Old Testament number and a New Testament number. 12 apostles, 12 tribes, and that shows us the symmetry of the New Jerusalem. (coughs) Now, let's wrap this up. Wrap our study up today with an observation, another one about the architectural design. It's about the wall of the city. The wall is supported by multiple foundations. Verse number 19. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, a topaz, the tenth, a chrysoprasus, the eleventh, a jacinth, the twelfth, an amethyst. So there are twelve stones that are used in the building of the foundation. Now, trust me on this. I can make a sermon out of each of those stones. I can talk about the colors and make a sermon out of each one. I'm going to spare you that, okay? I'm not going to do that. I just want to let you know that these stones represent the opulence of the city, the opulence of God's wealth. God never spares any expense. And I think that you already know that. You know that in your salvation. God spared no expense. He gave the most precious, most expensive gift that he could give to save you. That's the gift of his own son. There is no higher price that has ever been paid than God giving his own son to save us from our sins. You know, God's never miserly. God never tries to keep things from us. Even though, even though we have no conscience many times about cheating God or stealing from Him. So we don't usually think about foundations. Here it talks about the foundation. We don't usually think about that. The foundation of a building is out of sight, out of mind. Foundation is the part that you don't see. You don't really care that the foundation is an ugly, drab, gray color of concrete. You don't care because you cover it up anyway. And before my wife and I bought our house, we looked at several different houses. The the realtor didn't say, now, bring a shovel with you because we're going to dig down and look at the foundations of all these houses, and I just want you to see how beautiful they are. Oh, he didn't ask us to do that. I mean, it's nice to know that the foundation is stable, but I don't really care what it looks like. It all gets covered up, so I don't care. Well, why then are we told about this foundation? Well, because it has special significance. God is very concerned about good foundations. He doesn't cover up this foundation. He wants you to see this, and he wants you to see he didn't make it out of drab, gray concrete. God used a very expensive foundation. Now, I'm not going to tackle today all the significance of it. I mean, just to give you a little bit of a hint, we're going to look at it later, but there are, there are uh, the names of 12 apostles that are written in 
the layers of this foundation. Each foundation has the name of a 12, one of the 12 apostles. And we're going to look at that statement at another time. But for now, for these next few minutes that we have left, I want us to think about the value of a good foundation. The foundation of your faith is very important. Now take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 7. This is the ending of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's the greatest sermon that was ever preached. And it ends with the necessity of having a good foundation. This is what Jesus says at the end of Matthew 7. You all are familiar with it. You've heard it in Sunday school. You've sung the song. You recognize it. Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now that's a great story. Why did Jesus end his sermon this way? Well, let's go up the page a little bit to, to verse number 18. Now, verse 24 starts with, therefore. He starts talking about a good foundation. And he talks about it because of what precedes it in this discourse, where he's talking about people believing the wrong things. Now, look at verse 18. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Now, there's a lot of people that cry after the Lord, 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 we know you, we're in church, aren't we? We're worshiping you. And he says, not everybody that calls me Lord is actually going to be in heaven. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Then he goes on to talk about the wise man and the foolish man and the foundations that they built on. Now the danger that we see here coming out of these verses going into that section is that there is a possibility, a very strong possibility, that you have built your foundation on the wrong thing. That you have built it on the shifting sands of wrong theology. There are many people who think that they've got it right, but they've got it all wrong. And they're not going to find out until this day comes when God judges people, they're going to find out that their foundation was no good. It's the wrong foundation. Now, most people don't think very much about theology. They don't think it's all that important. What you build your life on, they think is not all that important. And they show it by how they, they judge God in the mirror of self. They make God to be what they want Him to be. And they judge themselves by that. That's their standard. And so they're always thinking about things like this. And this is the preaching that goes on today. You need to reach your potential. This thing is all about you rather than about the power of God. And so in short, what they're doing is building their tower. They're building their pyramid to self 
The deification of man. And so if a preacher ever comes to them and tries to take them down into deep theology about God, they don't want to go. They don't want to have to dig deep. They don't want to get their hands dirty to see what God has for them. And uh, they want to stay up on the surface. Now, now true, truthfully, the preacher usually doesn't have a shovel that he can go deep anyway. He's not capable of doing it. So they spend their time up around on the surface area, and they don't even realize that there are nuggets of God's truth that are hidden down deeply in the Word of God. Their verse is John 3.16. That's all they know. John 3.16. And they're not even sure what that means. I mean, if you ask them to do an exposition of John 3.16, I'll guarantee you 95% of them will get it wrong, what that verse means. So, they build their faith on other things. They build them on a few platitudes, a few pithy sayings, without any support from the deep theological concepts of the Word. So they go to churches where they don't use a Bible. They don't carry a Bible to church because they figure, we're not going to need a Bible. Who needs that? Did you see our sign out front? Our sign out front that says what? Berean Baptist Church. And do you know that most Christians have no idea what that means? I've been asked so many different questions about what does that name mean? What is a Berean? People don't know because they never looked in the Bible. Bereans are people who study the Word of God. They want to find out what's in the Word of God. And that's what we're doing here. This is why we bring Bibles to church. This is why we use this thing right here. Because this tells us about God. It tells us who He is. It tells us what God expects from us. And what we do is we dig down in the Word of God to find those precious nuggets of truth that He has for us. So here's what most of these people do. They go to church and they sing. And they sing, our God is an awesome God. And they raise their hands and for 47 verses they sing, our God is an awesome God. And so you ask, why is God an awesome God? And they say, well, i got to think about that. Why is God an awesome God? Well, let's see, let's see. He gives us all this stuff. I mean, He's an awesome God because we get to sing about Him. We, we get to rock out to the rock band. We got a smoke machine that kind of sends a fog all around us. And he is an awesome God. And he gives us a rocking good time. And that's what God is to them. He's a rocking good time. And so God is what makes me feel good as I sway back and forth to the music. But wait a minute. Who is God? God is a God who builds foundations. He bids, builds foundations on timeless truths. Truths that are not relative to the way that you feel. God doesn't care how you feel. He cares about His truth. And you've got to get in line with His truth. And you better be feeling good about His truth because your feelings don't matter any other way. This is why we study the Word of God. Timeless, unchanging truth. That is what matters. Truth unchanged since the dawn of time that echo down through eternity, just like the song says. Truth never changes. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But how many times have you ever heard people talk about how truth is relative? Truth is what you think it is. There is no absolute truth. Our government tells us that. That's why you see our laws changing. That's why you see marriage changing. That's why you see all these other things that are taking place because we think that truth really doesn't matter. Truth is not unchanging. That is against the Word of God. 
truth is unchanging. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what Jesus teaches is that he is the rock of timeless truth. And we build our foundation on him, and any other foundation is sinking sand. We'll fall if our truth is not built upon Jesus. Now you wonder, why does Satan say, you don't need to bring a Bible to church? He says that because Satan likes chaos. He likes things turned upside down. He wants you to think that good is bad and bad is good. So he says, you don't need that Bible. But what do we learn about God? God loves symmetry. God loves order. Satan wants you to take, take your attention away from the Word, and God wants you to put your attention squarely on His Word. So what kind of a foundation does God build? He builds on truths. He builds on the truth of the prophets and the apostles. You abandon unchanging truth at your peril because it is the truth that God is going to judge us by. Not what you think is truth, but what Jesus Christ said is truth. This is why we don't abandon truth. This is why we are Bereans, because that's the way that God's going to judge us. It'll be judged, we'll be judged by his timeless truth. Now sometimes people say to me, and this is one of the, I think one of the easier sermons that you'll hear me preach, and uh, people will say to me, what you preach is too complicated. Uh, there's too much doctrine there. There's too much in your sermons that are hard to understand. These are hard concepts. Are we less capable of understanding what Christians in the past understood? There's a preacher who said uh, about my sermons, he said, when you preach the doctrines of grace, you are preaching confounded complexities. I don't know where he went to school, but these truths are things that Christians understood when the apostles wrote them. And so I'm just asking you, are educated Americans incapable of understanding these truths? And I say that you will be if you will not dig down and expose the foundations that are in God's Word. God has foundations that He wants you to see. He wants you to dig down to see them. And there are precious gemstones that are deep in the Word. Now, the wonderful thing about heaven that we see from this text is that we don't have to dig any longer. We don't have to dig anymore. When we get to heaven, we have perfect understanding, and so all the foundations are completely exposed. When we get to heaven, we'll understand those difficult passages that Paul wrote. Peter said, you know, things that he wrote are hard to understand. When we get to heaven, we'll understand them. We'll understand what Paul wrote. We'll understand what Peter wrote. What Isaiah and Jeremiah wrote, those won't be mysterious prophets to us any longer. And what Ezekiel wrote, have you ever read Ezekiel chapter 1? Figure that one out. But when you get to heaven, you'll know exactly what Ezekiel meant in that chapter. These things won't be mysteries to us. But you know this, and I don't want you to think this, that you have to wait to get to heaven to find the truth. No, you don't have to wait till you get to heaven. You know, some people say, well, you don't really need to worry about all of this stuff now because you'll get to heaven and, you, and you'll understand it all, so don't worry about it. And that's what keeps people on their way to hell. Did you know that? It keeps people on their way to hell. When somebody said, you don't need the Bible, 
Someday you'll understand it, so you don't need it now. No, you need it right now, because if you don't study it now, the truths of God's Word will never be opened up to you in heaven, because you're just not going to get there. You have to know who God is. You have to understand what God said. You have to understand what God is like. Jesus said, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Do you understand this is what the awesome God said? He said, search the Scriptures. Why? Because in them is eternal life. So the Scriptures are the location of eternal life. So you do your homework in the Scriptures now, or it'll never be revealed to you up there. Now, let me leave you with this thought today. Why did you come to Berean? I hope that you came because you wanted to see the truth opened up. I hope that you came because you're tired of hearing preachers' opinions about what God said. And this is why we open up the Bible, we read it, we exposit it, so that you can see this is what God said. And I hope that you came because you don't, you're tired of, of milky, syrupy, spongy, shifting, spineless Christianity. And you have found out that jello does not stick to your ribs. You need the food from the Word of God. You can read a thousand books, folks, that came from the Christian bookstore and not put them all together. And you will not have the depth that you'll find in one chapter of God's Word. Someone asked me a question this week, uh, reading a portion of Scripture, and said to me, what does that mean? And I said, well, here's what that means. And in the explanation of it, I had to go back into the Old Testament and to give them the underlying uh, principles that are put there. And this person said to me, how do you know that? How do you know that? Well, I don't have some special knowledge that God zapped me with. I only know it because I studied it. I only know it because I read God's Word from other parts and I keep on studying it. And that is available to every person who is in this room. Study the Word of God. The Word of God is deeper than you can possibly go. You cannot mine the depths. But when you start going down, the gemstones start to shine. You pick up nuggets from all over the Word of God that will strengthen your faith. So get a Bible. Build your faith on the rock-solid truths of God's Word. You won't see heaven unless you do. Our God is an awesome God. Did you know that? Read the Scriptures and you'll find out why. Then you'll understand why God is such an awesome God. And you need to know that. You need to know why. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you again for the precious word that you've given us. Lord, help us not to ignore it. Help us not to let the Bible sit on a shelf with dust gathering on it day after day after day. And then when we pick it up to go to church, we blow the dust off and then we can't even hardly find anything in it anyway because we just don't know where to go. Lord, help us to be students of your word. This is where we find out about you. Too many people have listened to what others said about you without ever reading the word of God for themselves. That's what we need. We need to be good students of your word. Thank you for the foundations that you have in your word. And Lord, we thank you for the beautiful city that you have designed where your people are going to live. A sure, steadfast hope that is anchored. We know that we're going there because we believe in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, you'd open the heart of someone today.
Help them to see Jesus today. Help them to see truth in Jesus' rights, unchanging truth since the dawn of time. Lord, help us to believe that. Jesus is the rock-solid truth of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think that during this week, I, I believe I'm going to write the final sermon in this series. We're going to end up at about, I think, at 16 sermons on heaven. And I hope that here at sermon number 10, that you're not worn out on the subject of heaven. And the reason I say that, because when we, when we dig into the Word of God, and we take a passage like Matthew 21, and we say, well, there is a passage about heaven, but that's all it's about. It's heaven. So we can read a few verses here, a few verses there, and it tells us a little bit about heaven. But have you noticed that when you start to study the Word of God, how it blossoms, how it opens up to the many other truths that God has for us in the Word? Now we can read about a foundation, but then we can start to discover how important that foundations are to God and what that means to us to have a firm foundation. So it's more than just reading a few words of description. It's words that open up our heart to the majesty, the magnificence of God and truths that are unchanging. This is why we do this. It's why we explore the Word of God. So when you see 16 sermons on heaven, well, we needed one. We just needed one. Tell us a little bit about heaven. We see now we have the opportunity to open up the entire Word of God and see a panorama of truths that God has for us. I hope that's appreciated somewhat. And I hope when we get done at 16 sermons, you'll say, don't you have 16 more that you could preach on that? And the answer is, I don't think so. Uh, you know, I'm probably going to be exhausted about that. But thank God for this wonderful place of heaven. There is so much associated with that. It tells us how great that God is. A wonderful place to look forward to. A sure, steadfast hope for believers in Him. I hope that you know Him. I hope that you're going there. Trust Him today. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.